So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may fulfil every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. If I've met you before, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here with Stephen, and it's uh, good to be with you. Um, let me just uh, tell you about uh, two people I know. It's not their names, but uh, two people I know and uh, what happened in their life. Maria grew up in a real Christian family, religious family, um, where being um, uh, Italian was part of her, her life was to go to church and go through the religious experience of life. But when she got to uni, she realised that it was just an activity she did and she wasn't a Christian. And she decided that being a Christian was to completely trust in Jesus and not rely on your good works. That she decided that she would go to a different church to the, the religious-focused uh, uh, works, rituals um, of her family. Maria was barred from family gatherings because of this. Maria spent many a times not being allowed to talk to family members because of what she decided about Jesus. Dimitri decided that when he, was, when he was a teenager, that Jesus was Lord and he couldn't bring anything to the table. That Jesus had done everything for him. And he decided not to go to a, an Orthodox church that his family didn't really have any faith, but they just couldn't con- just go because that's what you did. He was doing different things to his family, believing different things. And so his father said to him, I would have preferred you were dead than doing what you're doing right now. 
These are two real people where persevering is hard as a Christian. Where persecution is confronting. That little uh, video gives us a snippet of what's actually going on in the world outside of our lovely Adelaide bubble. And when we peel back Adelaide, we can see maybe some persecution, but then we look at the world and it just gets magnified, where people are dying, are in jail, because they say, Jesus is Lord, he died for my sins. Identifying yourself as a Christian makes this real. And the Thessalonians, was a, uh, they were in a place, funnily enough, called Thessalonica, and in this, in this place, Paul had come on, on his uh, journeys around planting churches, telling people about this guy, this man who's come, who is God, who's from the Father, who's died for their sins, and people believed in it. A church had started. But when this church had started in this, um, in this place, persecution came with it. In Acts chapter 17, we see um, a little snippet of uh, what happened when Paul went there, and, and we won't go there now, but there was a mob that was formed. Some who heard about um, Paul talking about this guy, Jesus, and how he was the Christ, and they didn't like it, and so they get a mob together, and they wanted to cause trouble and strife. And Paul wrote letters to the Thessalonians, encouraging them. We have one Thessalonians, then you get two Thessalonians, where he's wanting to help them to understand uh, understand their faith and particularly help them to understand in the context of this Jesus who you believe in is coming and maybe your understanding of this coming is a little bit skewed with so let's get it sorted so it'll be really helpful for you in your perseverance. This chapter we're looking at today I think is framed around prayer. It's framed around um, prayer and at the beginning of it it starts with Paul talking about how he's always uh, thankful for them. He's kind of really just thankful for who they are because of their faith, love and perseverance. And then at the end of this section, before the middle bit, that kind of sounded really hard if you were following on, which we'll get to, he talks about what he prays. What he prays for them and I think we need to consider that as well. See, these, these guys... Um, were confused about Jesus' return and so he wanted to give them clarity. He encourages them, says, you guys have understood the faith, I've encouraged you to believe in Jesus and you are and I want to help you to understand this and so I need to talk to you about God's justice and judgment. If you're not a Christian today, what I'd love you to do is to kind of sit back and see what the Christian perspective Paul is giving on prayer is in this passage and we also need to sit heavily I want to encourage you to hear the sombre hard and very confronting words on God's justice and judgment it would be wrong for us to shy away from them but they are hard for us to hear if you are a Christian uh, here with us today now, brothers and sisters, what we want to do is we don't want to just hear Paul's thankfulness and prayers and then not consider our prayer life and not consider 
how we pray. Later on, near the end, I'll ask you, when was the last time you prayed like this? And I'll ask you that twice. And I think we also need to sit, and I also think we need to sit uncomfortably with the hard words on God's uh, justice and judgment and see how that helps us in our walk in perseverance. That's where the passage takes us today. So let's, let's go there in, um, in verse 3. What I've decided to do today is I've put um, the verses on the screen and it kind of help us guide through and I'll kind of take you through the passage um, in, in, I think, what Paul's trying to help them understand. So as we start off after his introduction in verse 3, what we see is he says, we ought always to thank God for you. We ought always to thank God for you. Encouraging words because, well, look at them. Look at them. They are, they are a people who have faith. A people who have faith because your faith is growing more and more. He wanted them to grow and they are. He wanted them to see that Jesus was Lord, the King, the Christ, but he didn't want them just to go, okay, we believe that, we'll trust in him. They, he wanted their trust to then impact all of their life, that their faith is something that is expressed in everything that they do. And so, he, and he says, that's happening. And so, I'm just so thankful for that. And what goes hand in hand with that is that, the, of course, you love everyone. You love <laughs> the love of every one of you has for each other isn't just at a good level, you've found a good line. That's the point where you need to love each other. No, it's increasing. Your love is increasing. The natural expression of saying, <laughs> being a Christian, is that there is an increasing of the relationship, an understanding of what it means to follow. And so, with this faith, with this faith and this expression of love, faithfulness has a real expression in perseverance. Perseverance that keeps going no matter the experience. Verse 4, therefore, among, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. Keep going no matter what. The burden, the heartache, the pain of knowing my family is getting together without me, that Maria faces, is real perseverance to follow Jesus. To hear your dad say those words and to not chuck it in is real perseverance. That is enduring. And Paul is saying, I boast about your perseverance. The churches around Philippi, which isn't far away, they're going through uh, suffering. Your perseverance is being wrung out. We ought always to thank God for you. Wouldn't it be great if for a moment 
you're a follower of Jesus and you think someone could say to you, your faith is increasing. Your love for each other is increasing. Your perseverance is enduring. Not because of your own pride and because you want to succeed. That would pretty much just destroy all of that. But because you're expressing the faith that you believe more and more. Your faith doesn't stop at believing, but continues on into trusting God in times that you don't understand. Your love for people isn't just those that you like and get along with, but people that you find hard for whatever reason, which we all do, but you care for them. You give them what they need. And your perseverance doesn't waver. And the time that's about to happen in your life that hasn't happened yet, where you could say, this is too hard. Your perseverance increases because you don't want to. You want to endure. See, these are great words for the Thessalonians to hear and there's, there's harder words to come and challenges for them and the, the issues that they have. These are things that maybe we should want to hold on to. These are things that we should want to have as, us, as our God's people. But in this context of faith, love, perseverance, there is vindication for Perseverance. There is vindication, you will be proven right in your enduring. And what Paul says is it's based on God's judgment, his decision-making. His decision-making, his vindication, I think comes from two angles. It comes from a positive side and a negative side. His vindication about his judgment has a positive perspective and then hard words for those who don't listen to Jesus, who don't follow him. Look at verse 5. He says, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. That is, your trials that you have, well, when you persevere, it points to the fact that God is right. His judgment is correct. Your suffering now is proven right because something's coming. The judgment is a decision on standing before Him that God makes. Always, kind of, sometimes we can be always thinking about the negative component of it, which there is. But the positive side of God's judgment for His people is how the verse continues on. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Not because all of a sudden we've changed the gospel and it's about all the good things that you have done. It's because God who has saved you and you've continued in that. At the end, you're part of his kingdom. You belong to God. You're counted worthy. 
Yes, you belong to him forever. The kingdom of God is yours. It's extraordinary to think that there were more martyrs in the last century uh, than they reckon the previous 19 combined. We kind of think that we've moved on beyond all those things when the world wants to say, no, Christianity is a nonsense. It is to be hated and despised. There is this great encouragement you will be counted worthy my Thessalonian brothers and sisters who are persevering but there is a question that's hanging in the air is God fair though is he fair is he just what about all those all those that up to their death and they have just constantly denied that Jesus is Lord, have taken down Christians in whatever way. Is God fair? The answer is very short at the beginning of verse 6. God is just. God is just. That is the framework in which you think about everything. Even if you can't understand how it all plays out and and, and the picture is not perfectly clear for you, God is actually just. And so then he gives us a negative perspective, the kind of opposite angle, if you like. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He goes on to say in verse 8, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. He is just and God is the one who determines the punishment. And it sits heavy with us. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. But the thing is, we can only get our heads around this and not get it completely distorted and get it wrong uh, and get it right if we forget timing. We must remember timing. See, timing is everything. This will happen when, in midway through verse 7, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. You see, justice plays out and we need to remember that the just God is returning and his vindication of his people and his justice does include the hard, heavy burden 
of rejection of those who have caused trouble, who have ultimately rejected him. Jesus is always and rightly described as a God of love. That is who he is. He's also a God of justice. And he's described in verse 7, coming back from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. The end is how we understand God's justice. Jesus will not make a mistake. He will get it right and he will determine the punishment. This does also mean it's not ours to savour and to revel in. It's not ours to then decide the just judge does. But it's us to remember, to believe in, and to be warned by. You see, we need to see his heavy word. See, justice cannot be God's grace, which we want. We love God's grace. God saving us, even though we don't deserve it, and the other side being, oh, and he'll just ignore everything else. Justice cannot be grace and ignoring. Justice is loving grace and coming in a blazing fire for those who do not obey God, who do not know Him. I'm thankful for the police. I'm thankful for the courts. I'm thankful that we have a justice system. But do we for a minute think that the police always get it right, that people always, that no one ever escapes getting caught for the wrongs that they've done? Do we ever think that when they come before the courts that people who are guilty always get found guilty and people who are innocent always get found innocent? Do we always think that, uh, that it always works out right? It doesn't. Never mind the context that many Christians are wrongly being killed and the justice systems that they're in don't even allow for the possibility of these courts and these police doing... We have a hint of justice, but when it comes to real, final justice, it can only be Jesus who gets it right. And we need to see that end. Punishment could not be more overwhelming in this verse. And I think I'd be doing a disservice to us all if we glazed over it and didn't let it sit heavy with us. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or someone who's contemplating from the outside. Let me read verse 8 and 9 again. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. 
I've got to say, this week I found it very hard to get past the idea of everlasting destruction. The continual being out of God's presence, or putting it another way, facing his wrath into eternity. Heaven, uh, uh, rather hell, is not the idea, well, okay, I'm not with God, but I've got friends who don't believe in God, and so we can be together. All that is good, including friendship, all that is good, including whatever you want to decide, all good is with God. It could not be any more gut-wrenching than it's supposed to be. I think uh, one of the, uh, a bit of my story in, in truly understanding what Jesus has done for me was a time, I may have shared with you before about a time when I grew up believing the things about Jesus but I never really understood how I was saved and what grace was and at uni having a friend tell me all the things that um, she believed and, and, and I remember one of the things that she said was that we can have a life with Jesus forever but that also, also therefore means that if you choose not to follow Jesus there's life without him. I kind of always had that in my head but part of me coming to really truly trust in Jesus was the realisation that the other alternative is this. Eternal destruction. See, we can't get past it. How does this sit with you? Is the question to ask. See, if you're, if you're not sure where you're at with God, if you, if you know you're not a Christian that you know when he says that uh, they don't know know God or don't obey the gospel and and you can relate to that, how do you respond? Well, there's a few options. You could just be angry at what I've said. I think it's outrageous and inappropriate for this day and age and we're meant to be far more relational with everyone and just accept everyone's view. You could take that position. You could just dismiss the whole argument. You think, well, it's not that big a deal. You could go down that path. Or you could consider whether you should know God. And the good news about what Jesus has done is something that you should obey. See, that's why Paul went to Thessalonica. See, when he went to Thessalonica, we saw it in in Acts 17, he said, uh, as was his custom on the screen, Paul went... Uh, into the synagogue and on, and on, on the Sabbath, on th- I'll try again, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on, on the Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you as the Christ, he said. He went there to tell them there is been this promise, whether you're part of God, uh, the Jews, God's uh, people of past, and you know about God saying there's going to be someone to come to rescue his people, the Christ, the Messiah. Whether you know about him or not, whether you aren't the Jews, there is this guy, he's promised to come, he can deal with your life, and the way he's going to do that is by dying on the cross and coming back to life to conquer all of sin. He is Jesus. And you need to follow him. That is what he brought to Thessalonica. That is what 
avoids eternal destruction. That is what you can choose to follow and to believe in. That Jesus is actually one who will pull us out of that. That is the challenge and the warning for us. And it's up for us to decide whether we want to be angry, to dismiss, or come to the Christ who has suffered, died and risen for us. But if you are a Christian, how do you take on this heavy, heavy burden? You should, I think, sit a little uneasy with this passage and sit a little uneasy with it because it's written as part of your vindication for your, perse- your perseverance. That God is just, you're facing persecutions and troubles, I want, I want you to know that God is coming back, Jesus is coming back and will deal with those persecutors. There is vindication. I found it very helpful hearing uh, a sermon on this. Someone say, on one level, we want this. And on another level, not even God wants it. Because God sent his son Jesus to die so that eternal destruction can be avoided. But he's just and we'll deal with it. We will be vindicated and we can know, we can know that even when it doesn't seem like it. Imagine being in Nigeria. Ten, was it 10 people a day? Imagine being, imagine being there, being a relative and thinking, there's no, there's no vindication now. They're still around. I could die. My family could all be taken and I'm grieving the loss of my loved one. Timing is everything. And when Jesus returns, it will be sorted. So, after this very heavy word, right? That was pretty heavy. Yes? That was heavy. And it should be, I think. Paul is thankful. He's thankful about them and he, he, he's, he wants to pray. And so we have a thankful Paul about the Thessalonians who's boasting in their perseverance, who's seeing that the whole way that vindication will happen is intimately tied to justice. And so he finishes with prayer. He says, up on the screen, with this in mind, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God, always giving, always thankful for them, constantly praying for them, don't lose the constantly. And he prays two things. Firstly, may count you worthy of his calling. You know, in this passage, uh, in, in, in uh, the way Paul talks about calling in all his letters, being called equals being saved. He doesn't talk about calling as in, God calls you so then you can be saved. 
When you're called, you are saved. The prayer is not about making yourself worthy to God so then He might call you. May count you worthy of His calling is to say, you may be worthy of what it is to be a Christian. That is, He's praying that you live up to the thing that you're following. You pray, He's praying that people in life will be like Jesus. That is what it means to be worthy of His calling. You've been saved, not just to be in heaven, you've actually been saved to be transformed. And so if you're going to be worthy of that, you're going to be transformed. So that's the prayer. As Colossians says, we are made for Him, by Him. And so our prayer is that we may count us worthy of a calling. When was the last time that you prayed like that? I found myself asking that question this week. Secondly, and that by His power, He may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. See, your desires to do good are good. God wants you to be like Jesus. He wants you to actually have a purpose to be Christ-like and so He prays not that you can somehow within your own abilities and skills and um, brilliance, by His power, fulfill every good purpose of yours. When you decide something that is good and godly, the prayer here is that it doesn't just stay something that you decide. It stays, it comes into the prayer of being fulfilled, that you act on it, that it happens. This prayer is that these good intentions don't just stay that. To have good purposes is to then do something about them. I know there's times when I need this prayer because... I get stuck in genuine good intention. Do you ever get stuck in genuine, godly, good intention? You want to do what pleases God. You know what it is, but for what a bunch of reasons, it doesn't happen and you look back and you can come up with a list. It's good to care for your neighbour. You know your neighbour uh, needs something, but everything going on in your life that you never got around to it. The non-Christian friend who, who you've been meaning to catch up with and to spend time with and to live life with um, and, and have an opportunity to talk to about Jesus and yet there's too many stuff, things going on at church or in your own family life or whatever. There may be at T&E where a people of faith and love and hopefully that is your attitude and, and it's, it's what I know Stephen and I see that we actually had the intent of growing more and more into that that we actually don't want to see any chairs empty, that we do have the intent to actually grow TNE, that we do want to see more churches come up in Adelaide, or is this just a stuck with intent that we have? This prayer is that we, He may fulfil every good purpose that will act on them by His power. Another way we could put it is say to, to trust in Him that motivates your action. So 
So the faith that you have, the trust in that, motivates your action so that all your good purposes to be like Jesus actually happen. In a few weeks, when we start a series on Galatians, in Galatians, you might know there's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. If you're a Christian, I'm sure that you think, yeah, they're things I should be good at. I'm sure you could probably pick two or three that you know you're really bad at. Is it your good intention, godly good intention, to increase in those, but you stop there? Brothers and sisters, I can honestly say to you, I have failed there on patience. I am hopeless at patience. I have so often wanted to get better at it. And I need to pray this prayer more in my life. I want to suggest to you, you need to do business with God and think about how you can fulfill every good purpose and act. There's much more to say, but I want to finish with the goal of prayer that we see at the end. Why does Paul pray this? Why does Paul pray this? We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. God's majesty is distinct and overwhelming and holy and great and it's displayed, it's magnified in you. Is why we pray these things. To put in the spotlight on the Lord. And secondly, and you in Him. That's extraordinary. The glorification in you and you in Him. Is that being more like Jesus is not just a, uh, it's not about us, but as we become more like Him, there's a sense when His glory is shared with us. I don't have any other word for that than wow. His glory is shared with us. And so the passage finishes with a very helpful reorientation and reminder. According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been mentioning it, about it, hinting at it throughout, that it's not according to our good works, that we don't, through the back door, slide into contributing to our salvation and trying to earn favour with God. It's what He has done, according to the grace. And grace isn't just that undeserved favour that saves us. We don't leave that behind. It plays out in all our life. Brothers and sisters, let's be a people that persevere. Let's be a people who bring glory to God and let's pray about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what you have done in your Son is extraordinary. We thank you that there isn't just one option, eternal destruction. But in your love and grace and kindness, you have saved us. Help us to be counted worthy of your calling. Help us to fulfill every good purpose of yours in every act.
prompted by your faith. In the glorious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.